we're going to be seeing uh, how David needs the gospel, how God uses weak people like uh, you and I, and he delights in doing so even though we've not arrived yet. So we're going to read from uh, 1 Samuel 18. We're going to try to finish off this chapter today. 1 Samuel 18, beginning at verse 17. Then Saul said to David, Here is my older daughter, Merab. I will give her to you as a wife. Only be valiant for me and fight the Lord's battles. For Saul thought, Let my hand not be against him, but let the hand of the Philistines be against him. So David said to Saul, Who am I, and what is my life for my father's family in Israel that I should be son-in-law to the king? But it happened at the time when Merab, Saul's daughter, should have been given to David, so apparently there was an agreement there, that she was given to Adriel, the Mahalathite, as a wife. Now Michal, Saul's daughter, loved David, and they told Saul, and the thing pleased him. So Saul said, I will give her to him, that she may be a snare to him, and that the hand of the Philistines may be against him. Therefore Saul said to David a second time, You shall be my son-in-law today. And Saul commanded his servants, Communicate with David secretly, and say, Look, the king has delight in you, and all his servants love you. Now, therefore, become the king's son-in-law. So Saul's servants spoke those words in the hearing of David. And David said, Does it seem to you a light thing to be a king's son-in-law, seeing I am a poor and lightly esteemed man? And the servants of Saul told him, saying, In this manner David spoke. Then Saul said, Thus you shall say to David, The king does not desire any dowry, but one hundred foreskins of the Philistines to take vengeance on the king's enemies. But Saul thought to make David fall by the hand of the Philistines. So when his servants told David these words, it pleased David well to become the king's son-in-law. Now the days had not expired, therefore David arose and went, he and his men, and killed two hundred men of the Philistines. And David brought their foreskins, and they gave them in full count to the king, that he might become the king's son-in-law. Then Saul gave him Michal, his daughter, as a wife. Thus Saul saw and knew that the Lord was with David, and that Michal, Saul's daughter, loved him. And Saul was still more afraid of David. So Saul became David's enemy continually. Then the princes of the Philistines went out to war, and so it was, whenever they went out that David behaved more wisely than all the servants of Saul, so that his name became highly esteemed. Amen. Father, we thank you for this, your word, and it is our desire to conform our lives to it. Uh, Help us not to be conformed to this world, but to be transformed by the renewing of our minds, that we may know that uh, perfect, that good, that holy will uh, that flows from your throne. We love you, we bless you, we continue to worship you as we submit to your word. In Jesus' name, amen. I'm just curious how many people here remember about the uh, the arrest and imprisonment of California State Senator um, Alan Robbins. Did it ring a bell? Okay, it was apparently uh, an incredible scandal back in 1991. And I want to—he's—he's he's probably one of the rare criminals that actually does get caught and uh, <laughs> put into jail. Uh, the ones that, that are in office, that is. But let me read you part of his resignation letter. He said, "Over a period of years, as I drank the heady wine of power and influence, my priorities in office became distorted. 
Success and recognition were foremost. Honesty and adherence to the law were not at the center of my focus. And he goes on to confess some of the things that he did. And then he said, I wish my colleagues well, and it would please me if someone benefits from what I have said and rededicates himself or herself to staying clear of the line. When you are willing to walk close to the line, whether for political success, personal gain, or to help your friends, you risk waking up one day to find out that you have long since crossed a boundary that you vowed you would never cross. Now, this might have been Saul's testimony. If he had been caught and hung out to dry, he might have wondered, you know, that really is strange that I would have fallen so low. At the beginning of uh, my kingship, I would not have done some of the things that I'm doing right now. And last week, we started looking at why it was that Saul had sunk to such depths. Uh, First of all, we saw that he failed to treat the inner enemy of his flesh, which is a part of our heart, uh, very uh, seriously. Jesus said, For out of the heart proceed evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witness, blasphemies. It starts from within. And we saw last week that Saul really didn't consider his fear, his pride, his jealousy to be dangerous enemies. They're not dangerous enemies. You don't confront them, and they, see, they, they just keep growing and becoming more dangerous over time. The second enemy that Saul only half-heartedly fought against, he did bring David to play music and to sing those warfare psalms against uh, this demon, But he failed to really engage the demonic with the spiritual tools of of war that God has given to his people. And we saw the disaster that came from that. The third big enemy that dragged Saul down was the world system. The Bible speaks of the world, the flesh, and the devil. And a lot of people struggle over that. Last week, I kind of regretted that I hadn't dived into that. So I thought, okay, I'm going to hit it up this week. But what is the world? A lot of people say, how do you engage it? How do you fight the world? It just seems like an abstract, nebulous kind of a thing. The world system flows from the conglomerate of fleshes out there who have written, entertained, spoken, ruled, felt, and valued independently of God. You can kind of think of it as a culture's values, culture's entertainment, culture's goals, but again, independent from God. It's an amalgam of the corporate worldview of millions of people. Now, if you don't think that you are being taken in or that uh, you are in any danger from the world, you're naive. Every one of us has uh, our, our flesh being pulled by the world. It, it identifies with the world, and it is a dangerous enemy, and it's very, very hard to resist. And part of the reason it's hard to resist, and I just mentioned our flesh has appealed to it. It's fleshes out there appealing to our flesh. Part of the reason uh, also is that we want to please others. We don't want to seem like oddballs. A uh, Part of the reason is that uh, we're like fish. Uh, fish don't know that they are wet, likely, because <laughs> that's all they've ever known. They've never experienced uh, dryness. They're immersed in water, right? And we are immersed in the world unless we start immersing ourselves in the Scripture and in the biblical worldview. And so as we go through this passage, you might think that some of the things that Saul is doing are crazy. How in the world could call, uh, Saul even think of doing such things as a professing believer? Well, Part of the reason is because, you know, the world has uh, got different manifestations. The root's going to be the same all the time. 
But the way the world manifests itself right now makes us look back then and say, that's a little bit weird. But if Saul were to look at you, he'd shake his head at some of you and say, what? I can't believe you guys are given into the world that way. We tend to be blind uh, to the way in which the world affects us. And so don't be wagging your finger at Saul and saying, what a nutcase, because even David, we're going to be seeing in this chapter, gives into the world system in some uh, small way. And I can pretty much guarantee you that none of us in this room has had a consistent total rejection of the world system in your life. It's probably very, very unlikely. Our worldview tends to shield us from thinking critically, but we absolutely must. We must examine and re-examine over and over again what our presuppositions are from the Scripture. Everything that we think and value and do flows from those presuppositions. And here's what Romans 12, 2 says. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. And I don't want this to be a a discouraging uh, sermon. Uh, You're likely, as we go through this sermon, going to see some ways in which you've been infected by the world. Uh, Don't be discouraged by that fact because God is, uh, is constantly opening up new ways in which we see that this is true. It's part of the sanctification process. And one of the phrases that we use at this church is direction, not perfection. Okay, We, as elders, are not expecting perfection from people, but we try to herd people so that they're going in the right direction generally, right? But we realize God's not finished with you yet. He's not finished with us yet. And we're constantly going to be finding new things in our lives that need to be dealt with. David was going the right direction, even though he had a number of issues that he was kind of blind to. Saul started off well, at least fairly well, right from the beginning. He he really was driven by the world system. But there there were more and more points where it got worse to the point where he is going the totally wrong direction in his life. But if you were to ask him, he'd say, oh, of course I'm a Christian. Well, he wouldn't say Christian. He'd say, I'm a believer in Yahweh right back there, right? But it's the same God, so I I call him a Christian, whether it's Old Testament or New Testament. He read the Bible, he went to church, he prayed. Uh, In the next chapter, you're going to see him uh, going to the, the holy festivals of the Lord. And yet, his thinking was predominantly driven not by the Scripture, but was being driven by the wisdom of the world that he had immersed himself in. And uh, even as a king, too frequently, he took his cues for what a king should do, not from the law, but from what the nations around him did. And 1 Samuel 8, if you remember, that was way back when, when we were looking at that passage, we saw that God predicted that this first king would violate his laws on many areas and be thinking like the kings around him. And... um, I won't review the things that we talked about back then, but um, if you read 1 Samuel 8 and you look at the things that God is condemning in that chapter, they were normal. They were the things people normally did. And a lot of those things we saw are things we normally do here in America. Even evangelicals uh, think, what's the big deal? In fact, you could challenge them. Read 1 Samuel 8 and tell me how many of those things you think are wrong. 
I mean, people wonder, what's the big deal? Why is God getting on this king's case about all of these things? This is the way things are. And they don't see that it's wrong. Why? Because evangelicals are immersed in our current worldview, which is dominated by a big government philosophy, right? They're they're oblivious to that. When you're immersed in a culture, doing things the culture's way seems like the most natural way of doing things. And that's the way Saul lived. When it came to women... This is the way David lived. This is the big blind spot uh, in his life. Now, we're going to start by looking at Saul, and I want to phrase this in a way that you'll be able to uh, clearly understand. Rather than saying to God, Lord, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven, what Saul was in effect saying was, Lord, please bless my kingdom. Please help my will to be done today. Please help my desires to prosper. Now, when you rephrase it that way, I think all of us will recognize we've got a little bit of Saul in us because that's the way we tend to pray. Lord, I want you to baptize the wisdom of man that I've embraced in my life and bless it. Isn't that the way we pray? Uh, Richard C. Trench said, prayer is not getting man's will done in heaven but getting God's will done on earth. Now, if we flip that around, we're praying according to the wisdom of the world. So what I'm trying to say in this introduction is all of us are probably in the same boat, uh, various degrees on this pathway of righteousness, but this is a message. Don't just say, oh, well, that was King Saul. He's a bad guy, you know. There's nothing for me to learn. No, we need to learn as we examine his life. And then at the end of the sermon... What I want to do is encourage you that, that um, God is so gracious. He blesses David despite the fact that David has been infected by the world system. Uh, he rejoices over us even though we haven't arrived yet, but he rejoices because we're going the right direction. So uh, hopefully you'll find this uh, sermon encouraging in two directions. first direction is you know, not getting too discouraged over your failures. You get up and you go on again in the grace of the Lord but also being motivated that it is worthwhile to fight against the world and to not be conformed to this world, but to be transformed because, and we're going to keep, you know, pressing this with you guys, we want you blessed. We want you avoiding the pitfalls. Okay, in your outlines, I've listed six problems that I see with Saul in this passage, and most of this sermon is just going to deal with Roman numeral one. Problem one is that Saul uses people. Verse 17. Then Saul said to David, Here is my older daughter Merab. I will give her to you as a wife. Only be valiant for me and fight the Lord's battles. For Saul thought, Let my hand not be against him, but let the hand of the Philistines be against him. Now, at this point, Saul decides, okay, I'm not going to take the blame for David's uh, death. I'll let the Philistines do that. In fact, I'm going to lure David through entice, by enticing him with Merab. You go fight these battles. I'm going to get you involved in more and more dangerous skirmishes. And uh, the lure at the end is you can have uh, Merab. He hopes David's going to die before that happens. But what is astonishing to me is the way he is using his daughter. This is just incredible. Why would he marry his daughter off to somebody that he hates? I mean, if David is really as bad as Saul thinks that he is, he ought not to be giving his daughter to, uh, to this man. 
Now, he may think in some perverse way that he loves his daughter, but he's really using her. How many of us use our children for our own agendas? Or do we ask ourselves, Lord, what is it you desire? What would be in the best interests of my child? I want your will in my child's life. Now, obviously, the second person being used is David. As far far as Saul is concerned, he is a tool. Now, earlier he loved David because David was useful to him. Now that he, he, he feels David is a threat, he wants to get rid of David, but he's still going to use David. He says, okay, hopefully he'll eventually die, but in the meantime, I'm going to get everything I can out of David. I want him to fight my battles and, and uh, fight against those Philistines. And so you can see that he's got a user heart. And by the way, it's not just rulers who can be users. I've seen pastors who are users. I've seen welfare people asking for handouts who are users. Any of us can easily fall into this syndrome. Saul uses Adriel in verse 19. Now, here is somebody we know almost nothing about. But Saul gives Merab in marriage to him. It must have been pretty important to break an engagement. And you you might wonder, you know, what, what is with that? And various people have hypothesized. We don't know for sure. Some people have said, well, maybe he was trying to irritate David provoke David to anger, and then when David gets in, in, a, in an angry outrage, then he can, okay, away with you. And others have said, nah, it's probably not that. He just needs to use uh, Adriel. And he says, sure, I've uh, promised uh, Merab to David, but um, if, uh, if you serve me in this way, you can be my son-in-law. But it doesn't matter which way you interpret it, Adriel is being used. He's being used here. Then in verses 20 through 21, He uses Michal, his second daughter. Now, Michal, Saul's daughter, loved David, and they told Saul, and the thing pleased him. So Saul said, I will give her to him, that she may be a snare to him, and that the hand of the Philistines may be against him. Therefore Saul said to David a second time, you shall be my son-in-law today. Now, that's scandalous. Sure, he may think he's doing the right thing, but he's stepping on his daughter's heart in the process. Just another illustration of how he uses people. And at number five there, he naturally assumes everybody else is using him. This is the way life is. He probably doesn't think there's anything wrong with it. This is just the way life is. That's why three times in this passage it says that Saul feared David. He assumes David will do exactly the same thing with him that he does with everybody. Verse 9 says he eyed David with suspicion from that day forward. The whole passage says he wants to do David in. He becomes an enemy. Why? It's because, not because David's done anything bad, but it's because we have a tendency to think others, assume others think the same way we do. It's actually one of the the few points that uh, has any merit in it from uh, Freud's uh, system of psychology. Uh, He talked about projection where you're projecting onto others what you would have done if you were in their shoes. Uh, They define that as um, projecting one's own undesirable thoughts, motivations, desires, and feelings onto someone else. And unfortunately, Freud had interpreted it within a perverted system that never gave liberty to anybody, so don't say I'm endorsing Freud, okay? (laughs) But you did have a point there. People have this tendency to do this. But the Bible warns us, not to do this when it calls upon us to think of others more highly than we do of ourselves. Now, that takes a mighty work of grace to do that. And God did that work in David's life, and you can see that in verse 18. 
So David said to Saul, Who am I? And what is my life or my father's family in Israel that I should be son-in-law to the king? So David doesn't instantly jump on this opportunity to climb the corporate ladder, so to speak. That's what Saul would have done. But he doesn't want to use Saul for self-advancement. He's living right side up in an upside-down world. And God's grace can help every one of us to do that. Now, you might think, is it worth it? Because David, when he's living right side up, Boy, does he get trashed. I mean, he gets in trouble over and over again. And so you might have to cry out to the Lord, Lord, I need more of your user-conquering grace in my life uh, because this is not the direction my heart wants to go. But if you are indwelt by the Spirit, that Spirit is going to make you want to be more and more like God. And how is God? God is not a user. Not at all. Sometimes study His doctrine, His attribute of aseity, A-S-E-I-T-Y. It's a doctrine that means he needs nothing. He is totally self-sufficient, which automatically means why would he use anybody? He doesn't need anybody. Instead, he is always overflowing, overflowing. And people say, well, why is uh, God always seeking praise for himself? He's not. The Father is always seeking to praise the Son and the Spirit, and the Spirit is always seeking to praise the Son and the Father, and they're always wanting us to be praising uh, God as well. It's always self-giving. That's the way the nature of His love is. God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. It's a self-sacrificing love. And so... You see Jesus sacrificing himself in this way, becoming like a servant. You see the apostles becoming servants uh, to, to other people. And if you ever get elected to office, don't act like Senator Alan Robbins. Don't let politics corrupt you into using people, using people. Uh, even if it's for a good goal. Retain a servant's heart. Now, some of your political trainers will tell you you're not going to get anywhere if you have that kind of an attitude. People will run roughshod over you. Oh, boy, they're going to take advantage of you. If you're in business, uh, your sales trainer may tell you, don't take that attitude. It is not going to work. Let me tell you something. It actually does work. God's ways always work better. Uh, There's one book called The New Conceptual Selling, which I don't know if the guy's a Christian or not, But uh, he shows how God's method of looking to the interests of the other person more than your own ends up, initially you lose sales, but ends up over time making people respect you to the point where you prosper incredibly. There's a lot of top executives that are beginning to realize, you know, this old way of high-pressure salesmanship where you pressure people into buying something and then they hate you for it doesn't work. And so the new conceptual selling is advocating the exact opposite of this user mentality. And uh, they have found that it's been incredibly, incredibly successful. Uh, Anyway, um, that book also illustrates point number B. We need integrity if we're going to have long-term success. And Saul lacked it. Back in chapter 17, verse 25, Saul had promised his daughter to the person who kills Goliath. David kills Goliath. There's been no offer forthcoming. He's been waiting, you know, for, uh, for some time. So he's really gone back on his word. But once Saul starts thinking about killing David in other creative ways, he begins thinking, you know what? I can have my cake and eat it too. Maybe I can offer uh, David uh, Merab again. But he doesn't do it on the basis of his having killed Goliath. 
No, he's changing his word again. He's saying, no, 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 you've got to do a whole bunch more things for me in order to have Merab's hand in marriage. Just no integrity there. Of course, his promise of Merab in verse 17 is broken pretty quickly in verse 19. He gives her away to somebody else. And then later, even while making the promise in verse 21, he has no intention of fulfilling it. Verse 21 says, So Saul said, I will give her to him, that she may be a snare to him, and that the hand of the Philistines may be against him. Therefore Saul said to David a second time, You shall be my son-in-law today. Does he become Saul's son-in-law that day? Nope, nope, he doesn't. Saul's beginning to lose some credibility, though. So what he does is he, uh, uh, he's been breaking promises just as fast as our Congress <laughs> breaks uh, uh, promises. But what he's doing here is he's saying, you know, people are maybe not going to believe me if I keep doing this. So I'm going to secretly do this through intermediaries. There's a little bit of plausible deniability there. Uh, but the point is he totally lacks integrity. He doesn't keep his promises. And if you think that the lack of integrity in American politics is a new thing. It's not. This has been part of the world system right from the foundation of the world. And if you buck the system and you approach sales, marketing, politics, or anything else with total integrity, people will think you're either stupid or that you're lying. You you really can't be serious about this. Saul naturally assumes nobody else has integrity. Because he didn't have integrity. He can't imagine why anybody else would be motivated to have that. And that's why he's constantly on guard. That's why he gives favors. And he plies one person against another person. He doesn't think he can win with integrity. And I want you to notice the stark contrast in David. In verses 18 and 23, he tells the truth about himself even though the truth could jeopardize his future, could jeopardize his reputation. In verses 26 through 27, he goes beyond the call of duty. For example, last phrase of verse 26, now the days had not expired. Okay, so he had so many days in which he had to kill 100 Philistines, and if he was going to get Michal's Michal's, um, hand in marriage, well, David gives more. Uh, He's going to beat the the, the time record, and he's going to uh, beat the price, In other words, for David, it's his personality to go above and beyond the call of duty. He never cheats. He never cuts corners. He's always good for his word. So the text says there, Therefore David arose and went, he and his men, and killed 200 men of the Philistines. And David brought their foreskins, and they gave them in full count of the king, that he might become the king's son-in-law. Then Saul gave him Michal, his daughter, as a wife. So Saul had no way out at this point without getting egg on his face, so he does follow through. But he doesn't learn to have integrity himself. Though David wins in God's eyes, even though he wins in the people's eyes, what happens here is he becomes a target for Saul. He becomes a threat. Saul cannot afford to have people of integrity hanging around. I say, that, that, that's very interesting, but this is human psychology. He cannot afford to have that. Let me just illustrate. I have had... At least three friends, and there's probably been more, but my memory uh, maybe fails me, but three friends who have lost jobs over the issue of integrity. Now, they've had integrity, but the bosses wanted them to lie. And in one situation, the bosses wanted them to do unethical things. And there was a third situation where he wanted them to sign off on a government thing that would have been a lie. 
and uh, would have involved them in criminality. Well, all three were unwilling to do that, and they lost their jobs. And I'll tell you something. If you are tight on money, and the boss says, you better sign off on this thing, or you're going to lose your job. Oh, it is so hard. Being upright seems upside down. It just doesn't seem right. It's so hard to do the right thing. Well, um, you probably saw the news last year of Alexei uh, Simovsky. He was a 32-year-old uh, police major in Novorossiysk, uh, Russia, and sick of the corruption on the police force. And he says just a Russian mafia system that pretty much all across the country taken over the police force. He told his wife, you know, I've got to do something about this. I'm a person who's in authority And I just cannot live with myself and not try to resist this corruption. Anybody seen all of the the YouTubes on that? Oh, it was everywhere. Two million hits. (laughs) But um, uh, he said to his wife, if I do this, I'm likely to get killed for sure. I'm going to end up in jail. But uh, he said, "I I cannot live with myself without resisting this. So what he did is he made a... uploaded a YouTube video of himself talking about the corruption that was going on in the police department, naming names and saying, this is all over Russia. This is going on. The mafia has taken over. And he's appealing to the president of uh, Russia and saying, please, president, deal with this corruption. Well, he became a big hero among the people, uh, about two million views. He was immediately fired from his job. The police interrogated him, his relatives, his close friends. They raided their homes. They tried to plant drugs on him. I forget now how he got out of uh, of that particular scenario. Uh, But they arrested him, charged him with embezzling. Uh, He sat in jail for six weeks. But because of such a huge uh, public outcry uh, in Russia, they released him. But he was immediately charged after his release with slandering the police department. And the judge charged him $3,500, the equivalent of $3,500 fine for slander. And so just like with David, when you have integrity, wow, can it backfire. Yeah, it can really hurt. Even in the good old USA, whistleblowers, (laughs) a lot of times they get themselves into deep trouble, as you've been hearing in the news recently. Now, what I'm doing here is I'm trying to describe this world system in a way where you can see Yes, it is hard to resist. Yes, it does pull at our flesh. And it is an enemy. It's a dangerous enemy. And if we do not have integrity, we are not going to have long-term success. Problem three is that Saul used manipulation rather than true biblical authority. And this is always a temptation for those who are in authority. Uh, Even uh, we, we fathers... Uh, there's a temptation for us when we're not getting the respect we think we, we need. Instead of operating in terms of authority and leaving the results in God's hands, no, we, f- we feel we've got to follow up with manipulation. We've got to follow up with, with force, you know, force uh, the, the authority to work. Because just exercising God's authority, that didn't work. People just ignore you. <laughs> and so people operate then in the wisdom of the world. There is a huge difference between exercising authority and trying to rule by power. They are different things. They are different things, and we need to recognize that. And what some people speak of what Saul is doing here, uh, uh, they describe it as being the spirit of Ahab. You know the story later of King Ahab and Jezebel, the, uh, the, the manipulation, the... Um, 
the, the attempts of control and uh, pitting this person against that person, all of these uh, stereotypes, they say, okay, that's the spirit of Ahab. The inverse of it is the spirit of Jezebel. She does exactly the same thing, but she's not in authority. So she's seeking to uh, control the authority that's over her or manipulate that. And let me tell you, this is not just something in the world. There is a huge problem with churches all across America uh, and in Omaha itself, the spirit of Ahab, the spirit of Jezebel. Uh, on the one hand, the spirit of Jezebel seeks to use, intimidate, control, manipulate those in authority. Ahab responds with the same thing. I actually believe it's the same demon who appeals with this worldly wisdom to our flesh, but um, that's the way they, they, they label it. And it takes faith to exercise authority and to leave the results in God's hands. Very few modern leaders do that. When they can't get their way, they try to use force. And we see that in the next chapter. Just as Jezebel and Ahab would later do, when manipulation didn't work, Saul resorts to power, power politics, forcing his way in chapter 19. It's the world's way of thinking. It needs to be totally foreign to us. There should be no manipulation within the family and within the church. And it was foreign to David. In stark contrast to, to Saul, David exercised servant leadership. You can see it in verses 13 through 16. You can see it in verse 18. Okay, He served Saul even when it looked like there was nothing he was going to get out of serving Saul. Okay, He's showing servant leadership. He served people, but above everything else, he served God. He wanted to be pleasing to God. And yes, he suffered as a result, but God blessed him. Husbands, when you exercise authority, you stand as a representative of God, and God will back you up even if nobody's following you. God will back you up. The moment you resort to manipulation to assert your leadership, you're operating from the principles of the world, not the principles of Christ. And I think some of you men can testify it's sometimes hard to do that because you feel like I'm robbed of being a leader. And some of you women feel like it's hard to be, you know, dealing with this without trying to get the righteous goals in some way through manipulation. We say, no, nah, let's just do away with that. Let's trust God. Do what God calls us to do. Trust Him with the results. Problem four. Saul used secret caucusing rather than an open sunshine policy. In verse 17, Saul keeps his true agenda away from David. And you see exactly the same thing in verses 21 and 25. Now, we expect hidden agendas from, uh, you know, pagans who are in Washington, D.C., but it's astonishing when we see the same things in the church of Jesus Christ. Uh, even in godly denominations like the previous one, I found true men of God who loved the Lord. They just didn't see what they're doing here. But true men of God who loved the Lord using the wisdom of the world. They had agendas which they sincerely believed the church needs to go in this direction. But they felt if we allow full discussion up and down, we will lose the vote. And so what they would do is they would have secret caucuses in which they would determine what their agendas were going to be, what parliamentary procedures that they could use to stop debate, to tangle things up, to confuse people. They were deciding in secret caucuses which people would line up at the mics, at the microphones. So as soon as so-and-so stands up, you, guys, you go to this mic, you go to this mic, we're going to start stacking these mics. 
uh, they would um, say, okay, on this day, so-and-so is going to wear the gaudy colored outfit so that whenever he stands, the followers will know, okay, you got to vote this way on this, on this particular vote. And uh, they just said, hey, this is the southern way of doing it. It's nothing wrong with this. This is just uh, giving your dues when the dues are needed. And um, anyway, all of this was done in secret. And you see this in so many denominations. It's not just pagans who live by the wisdom of the world. Christians are conformed to the world as well. Now, here's the thing. When you confront them and say, this is just not right. Let's have a debate on the floor. Vote it up or down. I'll submit to whichever way it goes. They, they just they, they don't th- see that as being uh, wrong. This is the way debates are handled. You're the one who seems upside down. Now, it's not just in modern uh, church politics either. Read some time the debates that went on in the first six centuries of the church over the church creeds. It is just astonishing to see the worldly political maneuvering that sometimes went on. Now, God used it, and uh, there, were, there was good that came out of these things. But the point is, we've got to be examining ourselves and say, is this the way God wants us to work? And we say, no, it's not. So there were hidden agendas. Secondly, Saul and his cronies traded favors with, his, with each other. If you support me on this, I'll support you on that bill. We see Saul trading favors in verse 19. Oh, I know I've promised Merab to David, but hey, if you do this for me, you'll be my son-in-law. You can have Merab. Is that any different than the trading of votes that goes on in the Congress? I don't think so. I think it's exactly the same thing. In verse 22, Saul told his servants, communicate with David secretly. And this behind-the-scenes secrecy is not conducive to honest discussion of issues. So when even churches engage in such behavior, they cannot expect the favor of God. Now, I want you to notice the stark contrast of Saul with David in verse 16. But all Israel and Judah loved David because he went out and came in before them. Before them. In other words, David did everything out in the open. Now, he had to trust God to do that. But God loves the open sunshine policy that David exhibited throughout his entire reign. And it would have been hard for David to do this because when he's out on the field, if he starts having some failures and that gets back to Saul, that can be used against him. But for David, it was very important to be open. In verse 18, David admits his weakness. He doesn't worry about the fact that this could cause a demotion. The world will tell you, don't ever admit your weaknesses. In fact, there's a movie about that. Don't, ad, don't, ad, uh, don't ever admit you're wrong, a sign of weakness or something like that. But don't admit your weaknesses. I'm sure this was surprising to Saul because he could have taken advantage of that. But um, if uh, you admit your weaknesses, you admit your inabilities, you might start worrying that people will think less about you. Well, if that's been an issue with you, I would suggest that you read Ephesians 4, verse 25, which says, Speak the truth with one another, for you are members of one another. In other words, he's saying, look, we ought to be able to be vulnerable with each other in the body of Christ because we love each other. We're for each other. We're not going to be using these, these standards of manipulation and playing this guy's weaknesses against this guy's favors. No, we care for each other. We love each other. We accept each other in the Lord. But you know what? It seems upside down when you're immersed in the world. 
The only way to fight the world of flesh and the devil is to be countercultural. In verse 23, David does the same thing. He's not about to overinflate himself, make himself look better than he really is. And I think we would do well to imitate him. Okay, problem five. Saul was driven by pride, self-seeking, selfish ambition, and the rules of the dog-eat-dog world. Uh, You can see it in verse 8. Saul resents competition, yet he's competing with David. Verse 9. So Saul eyed David, or some translated, eyed him with jealousy from that day forward. Verse 29. So Saul became David's enemy continually. And it didn't matter how much advancement in praise and esteem that Saul gets, he wants to step on the fingers of other people climbing that ladder of uh, respect and esteem. Let's, let's reread verses 6 through 8. Now it happened as they were coming home, when David was returning from the slaughter of the Philistine, that the women had come out of all the cities of Israel singing and dancing to meet King Saul with tambourines, with joy, and with musical instruments. So the women sang as they danced and said, Saul has slain his thousands, and David his ten thousands. Then Saul was very angry, and the saying displeased him, and he said, They've ascribed to David ten thousands, and to me they have ascribed only thousands. Now what more can he have but the kingdom? So Saul eyed David from that day forward. And he's assuming David's going to have the same dog-eat-dog approach that he does. And it doesn't seem to faze Saul that he's wanting to be promoted above his competencies and certainly above what he's actually deserving. He's saying, look, if they're ascribing 10,000 to David, I don't care if that's overinflated. I want more praise than that. He wants to be promoted above David. It's a hyper-competition. To me, this reminds me so much of what goes on in the world out there of business. People are constantly climbing the ladder of success until they're finally promoted, you know, the Peter principle, beyond their competencies, and they get miserable in their job. And despite the fact that this guy's miserable in his job, there's a whole bunch of other people that are envious of his position. They'll take a shot at it if they can get that too. But do you think that Christians will recognize this sin in themselves? Not usually. They're just as blind to it as Saul was. Why? Because their mind has been conformed to the world's way of thinking. Now, you guys have all bucked culture hugely, and I'll give you credit, credit, huge credit, because anybody who's willing to homeschool his kids already, you can see, you don't want your minds to be conformed to the world. But still, every one of us may have small areas in our lives where we're still being conformed uh, to the world. And here is one diagnostic question you could ask yourself. Is there, any, is there any scripture which I dare not obey or that I don't want to obey? And then ask yourself why. Now, you may have a legitimate, uh, a legitimate uh, answer to that. But your answer to that question, why is it that I don't want to obey that scripture, may reveal the pull of the world system upon you. And even saying, oh, well, it's a small deal, it's no no big deal, that itself is conforming to the world's way of thinking. If you give in on that little principle, you'll start giving in on slightly bigger principles. And over time, you're going to become just like Saul, where even on the big ones, you're oblivious. You cannot see straight. That's what happened with David. Here, he's mostly seeing straight, but he's giving in a little bit, and it becomes greater, and it becomes greater until finally you have the Bathsheba event 
uh, where he compromises big time and very willfully. The only way we know if we are being conformed to the world is by Scripture. You cannot say, oh yeah, that makes sense. That's a ridiculous approach. It makes sense. If you're upside down, nothing the Scripture says is going to make sense. It's going to seem upside down. Okay? So the point is, things won't make sense when Scripture addresses us because we're upside down. We're going to say to the Lord, Lord, help me to be right side up. Please help me to think clearly through these things. Paul called us to bring every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. That implies there is warfare with the world. My thoughts aren't captive to Christ. Lord, I want every thought captive. That's 2 Corinthians 10.5. He didn't just want the big thoughts captive to Christ. Every thought captive to Christ. Notice in verses 17 through 27 that the goal Saul is seeking to achieve is more important than the people he steps on. Now, some of us can do the same thing, even in little ways. You know, winning the argument can be so important to us, it doesn't matter that we're hurting other people's feelings. We're stepping on their fingers as we climb the ladder of, you know, who's won the most battles, you know, in these arguments. We've got to constantly be on guard against this value. The fourth problem that I've listed under point E is that Saul does not think of the interests of others above his own. Like a child, the whole world revolves around him. That's the way children are born. They're, they're a little god with the whole world revolving around them. Every time they cry, the parents pick them up. And uh, perhaps parents didn't train uh, Saul young that this is not the way. By the way, we do need to train our children very, very young uh, that the world does not revolve around them. If you pick your child up and you, you fuss and you do everything the child wants you to do for every fuss, every cry, everything, what you're going to do when they get to the terrible twos and three, you're going to have an awful time undoing everything that you've expected and trained them uh, to, to expect. And do not believe for a moment the wisdom of the world that says that your kids have to go through the terrible twos. Nonsense. Read Psalm 131. Psalm 131 tells you what your kids ought to be like by the time they're weaned. Weaned, okay? Let me read that for you. My heart is not haughty. So here is pride that needs to be dealt with before weaning. Nor my eyes lofty. There is selfish ambition. Neither do I concern myself with great matters. There is discontent. Nor with things too profound for me. There is a smarty pants attitude. Surely I have calmed and quieted my soul. There's temper tantrums completely dealt with. Like a weaned child with his mother. He's saying by the time you wean your children, they ought not to be going through all of these, these terrible things. And those who have bought into the world's thinking, imagine that's impossible. That's naive, Pastor Kaiser. That's so upside down. And the scripture says, no, it is possible for your children to be like that if you will use the Bible's right side up methods instead of the world's upside down methods of raising your children. And uh, whenever people uh, tell you, oh, yes, your children will go through the terrible twos, the thankless threes, the fiendish fours, (laughs) the flagrant fives, the sad sixes, the scandalous sevens, you, you, you name it. The egregious eights, the naughty nines, the tormenting tens and teens. 
tell them, no, I do not accept that negative affirmation. I am expecting better from my children because I'm following the wisdom of the Bible, not the wisdom of the world. Do not be conformed to the wisdom of this world. Why do we expect? If you do not have the faith to expect different, you're not going to receive different because if it's not a faith, you will receive nothing. And whatever is not a faith is sin anyway. But God says we need to be living by faith in every area of our lives. So if uh, you need help in getting your child to be a weaned child like this, uh, or if you've got older children who have not yet been weaned, so to speak, uh, talk to me. Uh, William and Sarah are willing to host uh, a, a parenting class at their house. Uh, they'd like to uh, learn some of these principles as well. So talk to me. We're going to try to set up some kind of a parenting class where you can learn to put off the wisdom of the world, put on the wisdom of God with regard to the raising uh, of our children. Anyway, back to Saul. He probably never got this training as a kid, and so he keeps being driven by pride, self-seeking, selfish ambition, and the rules of a dog-eat-dog world where, I mean, you know how kids work. If I can't have your toy, I'm going to break your toy. (laughs) You know, it's competition. How come he gets that many toys? I want one of his, or two, or all of them. Notice the stark contrast in the humility of David. In verse 18, he has the godly attitudes of the weaned child of Psalm 131. In verse 23, we see the same attributes of a humble person with a servant's heart. Okay, problem six. Saul sees government as being above the law, whereas David behaved wisely. Now, wisdom, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and wisdom comes from the Scriptures. So David has obviously been taught from the Scriptures and taught by Samuel, uh, coached on what it means to rule in a godly way. Uh, as we saw from chapter 8, uh, Saul took too many of his cues from the world system. And in case you think Christians can't do that today, uh, here, I just challenge you to take a little exercise. Look at the voting record of the last five years or ten years, how many years you want to take, of how Christians have voted in the Nebraska legislature or in the Congress or in the Senate. And just based on what I have seen from their voting records, I can guarantee you that Christians act as if they are above the law. They um, certainly are ignoring biblical laws on economics and on a limited state, but they're not even living within the law of the Constitution, the original intent that they vowed to, to uphold. But here's the thing that we've been seeing throughout the sermon. If you were to accuse them of that, they would hotly deny it and be surprised, shocked that you would even suggest such a thing. They will be blind to that. They're oblivious to these compromises. I've read some of the arguments for the health care system. They're oblivious to the fact that the Scripture would call them thieves and robbers. It would use very strong language against them. They're violating biblical economic law. But like a fish, probably doesn't know that it's that it's wet since it's never experienced dryness, these Christian politicians don't realize that they've embraced the wisdom of the world because in terms of politics anyway, they've never known anything different. They'd never been taught from the Scripture anything different. And so I think that helps us to understand, be understanding of them a little bit more, not being judgmental of them, realize, okay, that's where they're at. But I think it also helps us to use different techniques. If you just argue with them up here in terms of facts, they're never going to get it. You've got to 
look at their presuppositions and say, brother, sister, these presuppositions are not biblical. It's the only way they're going to be able to get it because it's through those presuppositions that they interpret the facts. And let's spend just a couple of minutes on how David shows that he's been impacted by the world and his seeking of a mate. Based on the eight wives that he gets and uh, several concubines, we're not told the number of concubines, uh, we, we can show that he, he has very little biblical wisdom when it comes to romance. I mean, I don't think you can avoid that fact. Just reading for, through First and Second Samuel, uh, it, it, it's very clear. Now, you could blame some of it on his hormones, but honestly, I think David, in most of these cases, Bathsheba being the exception, he thinks this, he's doing an okay thing because he's so immersed in the world's way of... He does not have his head screwed on straight when it comes to women. And he role-modeled the same wisdom of the world to his children. They made lousy choices. By the time you get to Solomon, he's, he's doing absolute foolishness when it comes to romance, and he admits it at the end of his life. He says, don't imitate what I did. This is, this is ridiculous. Now, there's two applications I make from that fact under Roman numeral 2. Point A says... Those who naively think that problems will disappear when arranged marriages are substituted for dating need to study the depravity of parental decisions for marriage. Now, I'm not saying that parents shouldn't be involved. You guys know me better than that. I think they must be involved. They've got to be very heavily involved. You maybe think, I believe they should be involved more than you think they should be involved. They need to be involved, but the point here is parents are depraved too. They can make bad decisions too. Courtship and betrothal is not a magic bullet. I think we've got to realize there is no magic bullet other than clinging to the cross, clinging to the Lord Jesus Christ. We've already seen that Saul is willing to step on his daughter's heart for selfish gain. Now, would you trust Saul to arrange your marriage? <laughs> he, he doesn't seem to be using very much wisdom. The Puritans railed against parents for forcing their children to get married for political gain or financial gain. And you can tell from the sermons that these Puritans thought that these Christian parents are thinking according to the wisdom of the world rather than the wisdom of the Bible. And I didn't put it in your outline, but really parents can do that with any approach. They can do it. I've seen parents do it by pushing their kids into recreational dating. Hey, how are you going to know that it's the white, if you're not kissing, if you're not doing recreational dating? It's the wisdom of the world. So there's many different approaches people take that are not from the Bible. We can only have our thinking and our lives transformed as we immerse ourselves in the Bible. Too many people look at biblical romance and they say, that's upside down. That is absolutely crazy. Well, it only looks upside down because we are so upside down. When Kathy and I were first courting, uh, thankfully, there was a professor there that taught me some biblical principles of courtship. And yet we were getting persecution from our Christian friends there because we weren't kissing and we weren't hugging And we're saying, look, we're not even saying what you guys should do. I just know we cannot do this. And yet, from their perspective, we were so upside down and weird in doing this that they said, you got to cut it out. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Doesn't matter what area of life you're looking at, you got to be thinking at it scripturally. A second thing that we'll see in Saul is that he seeks to bypass David's headship of the home. Verse 21 says, So Saul said, 
I will give her to him that she may be a snare to him. Now, that's part one of his plan. He thinks he can control David because so far he's been able to manipulate and control his daughter. But his whole goal here is wrong. He is trying to inject himself into David's marriage. How many parents are there that do exactly the same thing? They don't let go after their, after their children. Their children, that's their own home. We cannot be twisting their arms. We cannot be controlling them. They leave and they cleave. And, and yet many times parents do this and they think this is the right thing to do. In chapter 19, Saul rebukes Michal for standing with David rather than standing with him, her father. That's just an amazing thing. And, and she's so fearful of his manipulation control. It's almost a demonic thing there. She fears, and she says, well, David, David would have killed me. if and It just lies about David, which sets up even greater antagonism toward David. This is the first of a number of things that shows that Michal is thinking from the wisdom of the world. Now, strange as it may seem, both total control and total hands-off can be just as much driven by the thinking of the world. One's just a little bit older than the other. And in the homeschooling movement, there has been a reaction against the kind of control in courtship and betrothal that parents have said, the new generation of parents has said, we're not doing that. We're going to go over into the dating uh, model. And what they fail to realize is that the world's thinking continues to drive them. What was Mikal's criteria for romance? Doesn't seem to be very much. Now, I think she knows a lot more probably about David's character than David knows about her character because he is a public figure after all. But the text seems to indicate that Mikal had the same crush on David that the maidens have on David in verses 6 through 7. He's handsome. He's dashing. He's brave. He's studly. <laughs> and verse 20 says simply, Now Michal, Saul's daughter, loved David, and they told Saul, and the thing pleased him. Here is a father not even aware of the fact that his daughter has given her heart away. Now, how many times does that happen where fathers are oblivious to the fact their daughters are giving their hearts away? They've never trained their daughters not to do that. It, 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 it's, uh, it, it's, you know, having a crush on somebody just seems like right side up in our culture. And by the way, God has made women to give their hearts away much more readily. We could discuss that some other time. And they need biblical guidance before they give their hearts away. Once the heart is given away, it's often too late. Though I tell parents, hey, don't ever say too late until they're actually married because uh, I've seen God do some wonderful, miraculous things. But what's David's criteria for getting married? Well, in 17, chapter 17, verses 25 through 27, it seems he's interested in marrying Saul's daughter and getting a tax exemption. At least one of the motivations for, for uh, you know, killing Goliath. And yet the likelihood is he knows very, very little about Merab, knows very little about her. In chapter 18, verse 18, he suddenly gets cold feet. He wonders if he's up to it. But the question is still not whether Merab, and later whether Michal, has the godly qualifications to be his wife. It doesn't seem to be the, the case. He's never asked himself, how much of Saul has rubbed off on Michal? He should have been asking that. Later on, we see there's a whole lot of Saul that has rubbed off on, on Michal. 
But what is David's reason for marrying? If you look at uh, verse 19, okay, there seems to be a scheduled marriage uh, there. It seems to be nothing else than marrying into the family. But for sure in verse 26, that's what it says. So when his servants told David these words, it pleased David well to become the king's son-in-law. Now the days had not expired. Now the rationale for getting married has little to do with whether Michal is qualified for marriage or not. It says, it pleased David well to become the king's son-in-law. That's the reason. It was marriage for advancement. And the last phrase indicates, based on that, they set a schedule. Now, verse 28 does say, Michal loved David, and I'm sure David reciprocated, and he learned to love uh, Michal over the short period that they were able to uh, be married. He tried to be a good husband. But anyway, even if they both had fallen in love with each other, later on they fall out of love with each other. In fact, Michal later despises David for not being like her father. He despi- she despises David. There's a lot of influence of her family upon Michal. Biblical romance should not be based on falling in love. Now, falling in love is going to happen. <laughs> it's very, very likely it should happen. But it should happen after you know this is the one that God wants for me. That's when it should happen. The biblical finding of a spouse involves examining worldview, the character of the parents, evidence of maturity. There's just a whole bunch of things you need to look at. And I would urge you to think through what the Bible says about romance and not to fall into the ways of the world. It's one of the reasons, by the way, that I'm writing a book on biblical romance. There's so much bad thinking out there. If we're going to immerse ourselves in the Scripture, we've got to look at hundreds of Scriptures that talk about this subject. I want to end on a happy note. Verses 27 through 30 show that God blessed and protected David despite the fact that he was infected by the world. And he does the same for us. And if he didn't, we'd be in a heap of trouble. (laughs) We would be in a heap of trouble. Now, it's true, David did not willfully compromise here. He willfully compromised when it came to Bathsheba, but he didn't do so here. I think he's convinced it would be the good thing to do. I don't want trouble with Saul. Maybe getting married to his daughter will patch things up and he'll like me and things will be great. This is the same philosophy that drove Solomon when he got married. He he made peace treaties with all of the other kings around there by marrying their daughter. Okay, that's just the way kings did it. That's That's the way they thought. But if you look at verses 27 through 30, despite these sub-biblical methods, it shows that God continues to bless and bless and bless. Let's read uh, 27 through 30. Therefore David arose and went, he and his men, and killed 200 men of the Philistines. And David brought their foreskins, and they gave them in full count to the king, that he might become the king's son-in-law. Then Saul gave him Michal, his daughter, as a wife. Thus Saul saw and knew that the Lord was with David and that Michal, Saul's daughter, loved him. And Saul was still more afraid of David. So Saul became David's enemy continually. Then the princes of the Philistines went out to war. And so it was whenever they went out that David behaved more wisely than all the servants of Saul so that his name became highly esteemed. What's with that? God blessing a guy who's getting married for the wrong reasons? Uh, It's called grace. (laughs) And uh, in fact, God could have caused his marriage to turn out real good. Uh, He has redeemed countless marriages that were not entered into properly. Praise God for that. It appears, you know, here that David's whole life is being blessed 
But it doesn't mean just because God has blessed you that you should say, eh, our kids can do it the wrong way too. No, we need to protect our kids from that. And I've seen too many parents say, work for me. Uh, it, it, it can work for them as well. We, we need to think biblically on this. But um, it's not as if the laws of harvest don't continue to work. They do. David will suffer from this decision. He will suffer from at least eight more romantic uh, decisions that he makes. As I mentioned, he marries uh, eight wives, a number of concubines. It's the wisdom of the world. But the laws of harvest guarantee you make a wrong decision, you will suffer for it. Now, God can minimize the amount of suffering, but even though there's forgiveness, even though there's grace, even though the Lord loves us, He delights in us, you're still going to have those types of things, whether you're a man after God's own heart like David was uh, or not. And so we need to think about that. But the point is, God knows David's heart. Unlike Saul, David is moving in the right direction. And again, that's one of the phrases we've got to hold on to. It's direction, not perfection. And obviously, in our counseling, in our phone calls, our emails, our shepherding visits, we're going to be hurting you. We're going to try to get you going the right direction. But we're going to to love you. We're not going to be expecting you uh, to be uh, perfect on, 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 on these points. But we do this because we want more blessings for you. We want you to avoid these problems. And I think as a church, we need to take these last verses to heart. It's too easy to be perfectionistic with others when we're not perfect. Too easy to be perfectionistic with our expectations of this church, our expectations of other church, uh, other churches. And, and so that's what I want to conclude with. Every person in this church is at various stages of growth. Uh, some of you may have issues that we keep talking about, preaching about, and you don't get it, and you won't get it till the day you die. Yeah, I mean, that's possible. And we're going to love you anyway, okay? Uh, it's direction, not perfection. When we get to some of the heroes of the faith later on in the book of First Samuel and Second Samuel, you're going to say, whoa, they're heroes of the faith? Boy, they got some pretty big issues. And yet God powerfully used those guys and blessed those guys as well. And here's the point. God is with us, not because we're perfect. God was with David, not because he was perfect. He was with David because every time David fell into sin, he clung to the cross of Christ. And he would get up and he would cling to the cross of Christ as he worked through these problems and and sought to move forward. Uh, He was willing to fight against the world's pull upon him. And And he said, open thou mine eyes that I may behold wonderful things out of your law. Lord, I want to understand more of your law. I want to keep growing. But he never did arrive, and Paul never arrived at the end of his life, and none of you have arrived, and I haven't arrived, and so we've got to be patient with each other. To the degree that David was right side up in an upside down world, it was grace alone that drew him there. And my admonition to you is to keep pressing forward into the right side up world, and don't get alarmed when other people say that you're upside down. Just say, Well, I've looked at the Scripture, and I don't think so. Uh, Here's the Scripture. Remember, the Scripture is a mirror. You hold the Scripture up before them, and you pray that God's grace will help them to see, whoa, I'm the one that's upside down. And when they do that to you, and they say, brother, you're upside down, and you look in the mirror, and you see, yeah, I guess I am upside down, be willing to immediately repent and say, Lord, I want to be right side up. Thank you for showing me this wisdom from from your word. And may we be willing to change. You know, the Bible's the only tool 
that can convince us of what is right side up and what is upside down. And may God bless you as you use it. Amen. Father, we know this is uh, a subject, the world, that is uh, sometimes difficult to wrap our brains around and uh, to wrap our hearts around. But I pray that you would help us to resist the world with everything that is in it to hate the world. You have said in 1 John that whoever loves the world or the things in it, the love of the Father is not in him. And Father, we want to more and more hate the world, to resist it, and to enter into that right-side-up world that you are creating and in which dwells righteousness. Uh, We love you, but we want to love you more. We know you, but we want to know you more. And so we pray, Father, that you would open the eyes of each one in this congregation of the ways in which we ought to be pursuing you more full-heartedly. But I pray as well for those who have hypersensitive consciences, who uh, have a tendency to come away from sermons uh, discouraged, that you would bring your encouragement and your favor uh, into their lives, that you would embrace them and let them know that it's uh, direction, not perfection, that you are causing us more and more to press into the upward calling that we have in Christ Jesus. May each one here do that. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.